If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at tntradio.live. Unleashing the Beast. Mark Morano is unleashed on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome to Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. All right, breaking news. EU Chief Ursula von der Leyen blames mass farmer protests throughout Europe on, drumroll please, climate change. Clip four. I count on your agreement. Honorable members, while the European Council was in session, farmers from across Europe were taken to the streets. Many of them feel pushed into a corner. Farmers are the first in line feeling the effects of climate change. Droughts and floods have destroyed their harvest and threatened their livestock. Farmers are feeling the impact of the Russian war, inflation, the rising costs of energy, the rising costs of fertilizers. Nevertheless, they work hard every day to produce the quality food we eat. And for this, I think we owe them appreciations and thanks and respect. And there you have it. That was EU Chief Ursula von der Leyen blaming the mass European protests of farmers on climate change and, of course, the Russian invasion. But here's the bottom line. Higher CO2, which allegedly is causing catastrophic climate change, has led to the greening of planet Earth. 2016, NASA acknowledges there have been multiple studies, a recent study. Deserts are shrinking, forests are growing, plant life is, is increasing. And here's the biggest part. Crop yields are through the roof. Through a combination of the CO2 greening of the earth and also technological advancements in farming, high-yield agriculture, the green revolution, etc. But the problem is not as she said, the farmers aren't protesting because, oh, things are bad because of climate change, and that's why we need more net zero rules to make things better with our climate. No, they're protesting because the climate regulations are what are killing the farmers, not climate change. And this has been the number one issue on every single issue from energy to transportation, freedom of movement, our food supply. It's the climate policies which are causing the problem, not climate change. The same with climate change, it's in a national security threat, but climate change is the national security uh, threat. Climate change policy is a national security threat. So this is just more of the insane stuff where they say all these bad things are gonna happen, then they start regulating to make sure bad things happen, the bad things happen, the farmers protest, and then they say, oh, well, that's because of climate change. All right, utter, utter silliness, utter nonsense, utter utter bollocks. I don't know what other word you want me to say. All right, now for the real breaking news. It happened. The verdict is in on the Mark Stein, uh, Michael Mann uh, lawsuit, defamation, also Rand Simberg, a CEI, uh, wrote as well, was also named in a lawsuit for defamation against Michael Mann. This was Michael Mann suing Mark Stein and Rand Simberg for defamation for things they wrote back in 2011. The lawsuit was filed, I believe, 2012. And yes, it's 2024. The case was finally heard. I think it was 11 DC jurors. And here's what they ruled. This is according to Andrew Lawton, who, by the way, Andrew Lawton 
will be joining us today. He's been on this story about Mike, Mark Stein and Michael Mann, uh, worked with Mark Stein, and he is going to give us the lowdown on all of this. Plus, we're going to talk about his fantastic uh, new book, The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world about the Canadian freedom protesters and how, uh, I guess how you could say, Justin Trudeau went full China, uh, went full mouthy tongue on uh, the protesters, uh, and we'll get to that. But let's go. This is the update in the Mark Stein, uh, Michael Mann trial with Walter Ransenberg. Oh, this is according to Andrew Lawton. A Washington, D.C. jury found that conservative writer Mark Stein and Ransenberg defamed climate scientist Michael Mann. The jury deliberated for close to a day before reaching its decision. At issue were two blog posts, one by Mark Stein and one by Rand Simberg, comparing the investigation into the alleged academic misconduct by Michael Mann, then a Penn State professor, to Penn State's handling of the Jerry Sandusky, uh, the school's former head athletics director who was convicted of raping and molesting children. If an institution is prepared to cover up systemic statutory rape of minors, what won't they cover up? Stein wrote in his post, which quoted Simberg. The jury awarded Mann $1 in compensatory damages from each plaintiff. So Mark Stein had to pay a dollar and Rand Simberg were not finished. It also awarded $1,000 in punitive damages from Sim Rand Simberg to Michael Mann and $1 million it ordered Mark Stein to pay Michael Mann in punitive damages. So I've already Mark Steins has already come out and said he will appeal at least the punitive damages and we'll see about the rest of the case. The jury found that the statements at issue were defamatory and published with reckless disregard for the truth. They also found that Mann suffered actual injury from the statement's publication. Mann sued Stein and Simberg along with their respective publishers, National Review and Competitive Enterprise Institute in 2012, claiming that the articles damaged the rep his reputation as a climate scientist. Wow. Just give you a little bit of initial reaction. This is uh, John Heinraker, who also attended the trial. Um, he reported a bitterly disappointing uh, verdict. Today, the jury returned its verdict of defamation of Michael Mann and Rand Simberg. The verdict was disappointing to those who followed the case. Uh, in a sane world, this case never would have gone to jury. The legal standard is actually malice, which means the defendants must have thought subjectively what they said wasn't likely true. In this case, there was no evidence whatsoever that Stein and Simberg didn't sincerely believe they said was true. And he goes on. This is the key thing. The case may have come full circle. Mark Stein always wanted to try this case in a free as a free speech issue, but that didn't quite work since defamation has always been an exception to the First Amendment or whatever free speech principles may apply. But now Michael Mann's lawyer has made it explicit. Impose an arbitrary seven-figure penalty on Mark Stein not to compensate the plaintiff, Michael Mann, for any alleged damages, no, who didn't suffer any damages whatsoever, but rather to deter anyone from ever again arguing that climate change alarmists are wrong, however flawed their science may be. And he goes on. This is John Heindrecker writing at Powerline Blog. It is hard to imagine anything more anti-scientific or anti-American. Let's hope that somewhere in the federal court system, there are judges who realize what is at stake. All I got to say is, wow, wow. And wow, this was a shocking case, a chilling effect on free speech. 
Michael Mann got this venue in Washington, D.C. 11 D.C. jurors, D.C. votes overwhelmingly Democrat. Bill Nye, the science guy, we'll have a little clip on him in a second, showed up at the trial. People called it jury, ter- jury tampering. This is the Democrat city. Democrat people probably all believe in climate change. To see the celebrity of, of, of Bill Nye there, I don't, I'm not saying that, swayed it. I'm just saying um, Bill Nye was a part of this, and they turned this into you know, you can't attack these scientists. And we'll get to it a couple others. There's a couple other key points. But Roger Pilkey Jr., who gave a deposition in on, on Mark Stein's behalf, uh, said making sense of Michael Mann's resounding defamation victory. Yesterday, a jury in D.C. Re- uh, rewarded climate scientist Michael Mann more than a million dollars, a thousand, yeah, million dollars in damages in a defamation lawsuit. And he goes on, uh, and he, and he just says the prosecution in the words of the court was disjointed and was reprimanded on multiple occasions. He's acknowledging that man did not prove really what he set out to prove. But here's the key. Even so, in a trial that most neutral observers, if you didn't have a dog in the show, would surely see as favoring the arguments of the defense, i.e. Roger Pilkey Jr., professor, Colorado State University, saying that a neutral jury would have ruled in favor of Mark Stein and Rand Simberg. But man walked away with a resounding, comprehensive victory. How did it happen? And he goes on, there's two pivotal moments. One occurred when man was testifying that he explained that he felt that the bloggers were not just criticizing him, but they were attacking all of climate science. And that's the key. This is what's happening here. He could not let that stand. As the world's most accomplished and famous scientist, man intimated that he was simply the embodiment of climate science. He pulled a Fauci, I am the science. Second pivotal moment occurred when in closing arguments, Mann's lawyer asked the jury to send a message to right-wing science deniers and Trump supporters with a large punitive damage award. That, to me, is the entire case. That is why Mark Stein lost this case, in my view. The lawyers were asked to send a message to right-wing, and I'll pick this up in a moment on that. Uh, The Smog blog, according to Rick Pilkey, accurately reported it. Man sued Steinberg, sued Simberg and Steinberg for defamation, but the trial proved to be about much more than the statements that harmed the scientist's reputation. The entire field and validity of climate science was under scrutiny. In closing arguments, Mann's lawyer, John Williams, compared the climate deniers, this is the words of the smog blog, in this case to election deniers overall. Why do Trumpers continue to deny who won the election, he asked the jury, because they truly believe what they say or because they want to further their agenda. He asked the jury to consider the same question for Stein and Simberg. Do they believe what they wrote or they just want to push their agenda? And that's it. And I want to read you the Washington Post headline because this also is a chilling effect because it's going to affect a lot more than climate science. Washington Post is gloating, famed climate scientist wins million dollar verdict against right wing bloggers. Whoa. And here's here's the uh, here's the key. This is the key sentence from The Washington Post. The Mark Stein Michael Mann verdict comes amid heightened attacks on scientists working on climate change vaccines, climate change and vaccines and other issues. This potentially is kind of a ruling has a, this is, again, this is DC Superior Court. This is, could be appealed to higher courts and may eventually go to the, free, to, to the Supreme Court. But the fact 
that they're going after climate. We're now thinking if you criticize Fauci, he is the science, the way Michael Mann and the UN actually said, we own the science. So you can't criticize the UN. You call anyone a fraud. Now, this is a way I would imagine a spate of lawsuits against anyone who's criticized lockdowns, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, climate change, the Green New Deal. Um, this is consequences we can't even conceive of at the moment. So I don't want to get too scared. We're going to pick this back up, the analysis, um, with Andrew Lawton here in a little while. Uh, but I wanted to show you, this is a clip from Mark Stein, 2016, talking about what's at stake. I'm going to play this whole clip. It's about two minutes. Um, this is Mark Stein from eight years ago, explaining why this case, if it goes the wrong way, could kill the First Amendment in the United States. And unfortunately, we're at that moment here uh, in February 2024. Let's play clip two, Mark Stein from 2016. So millions of dollars in both litigation fees and damages aside, what are the stakes of your case versus Dr. Michael E. Mann? Well, I think it's uh, one of the most consequential, the most consequential uh, free speech case uh, in the last half century. If in the event that I were to lose, I'd appeal it uh, to the Supreme Court because I think that's the stakes. We would essentially be in a world where uh, juries, courts, but not just judges, but juries would be litigating science. Uh, no court anywhere in the common law world um, has been asked to rule upon the validity of a scientific hypothesis. And for American courts to start doing that would be a disaster for the, for the field of science. But beyond that, it's a matter of public policy. Uh, climate change matters not so much because of what some guy with ice cores is doing in Finland. It matters because the government is presuming to tax us and regulate us and uh, make changes to the economy uh, and that makes it a matter of public policy and if if matters of public policy uh, can be dragged into courtrooms and decided by juries then there is no first amendment it's not much of a first amendment as it is if you can be uh, put through a court process lasting uh, half a decade uh, and spend a seven-figure sum to discover that you're legally entitled to make a 120-word blog post. I mean, that's two very faint cheers for the First Amendment. But if, in effect, uh, we were to enter a world where public policy can be litigated in courtrooms, then there is no First Amendment at all. And unfortunately, that seems to be where he arrived. That was a great analysis by Mark Stein of the stakes in this case. Now, Obviously, this is the D.C. Superior Court. These are jurors from D.C., heavily Democratic, probably very swayed by the, you know, just sticking it um, to climate deniers, sticking it to election deniers, sticking it to COVID deniers, whatever word they want to use denier for, uh, which is, of course, a reference to being a Holocaust denier. And it's not like, oh, I'm making a stretch. I have in my book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change, about two dozen examples of prominent figures in the media saying, out and active, environmental actors, saying, we're going to compare these guys to Holocaust deniers. We have Scott Pelley, the CBS News anchor, say, climate deniers will never appear on CBS Evening News because the same reason I wouldn't interview a Holocaust denier. Like, oh, geez. Um, and this is a case that's on, and we'll pick that up. Now, Bill Nye, I mentioned earlier, uh, he was caught up with uh, by Ann McElvaney and uh, fellow McAleer. 
who do the podcasts for uh, the uh, the uh, the trial. They've been hiring the actors and who've been doing a great job with this. Uh, on their Twitter feed, they posted this video of Bill Nye refusing to answer why he supports Michael Mann despite uh, Michael Mann's false claims about winning a Nobel Prize. Clip one. Has Dr. Michael Mann ever won the Nobel Peace Prize? Yeah, no, no, he has never won the Nobel Prize. He's never won it? No. Oh. You're the science guy. What do you think about someone f f pretending to have a Nobel Prize? I don't have an opinion on it. Here's what we do uh, in the U.S. Uh-huh. The jury determines what are called issues of fact. That I attended the trial today. Uh, I'm, on, I'm, I'm not qualified to make a decision. I'm not authorized to make a decision. It's the Department of Energy. What? Why are you running away? That again was by fellow Mackler and Ann McElvaney from climatechangeontrial.com. Go to their website, climatechangeontrial.com. All right, last clip and we got to take a break, but this was just fun. This was done by uh, the Capital Intel Group in Washington and they posted this video. Uh, how many times have you seen climate activists and those pushing the, all this freedom of movement restrictions on you driving and flying private jets or buying SUVs? Well, Michael Mann can add his name to the list. Clip three, Michael Mann leaving the courthouse in a giant oversized Chevy Suburban, it looks like, uh, SUV. So, I mean, that was fun. Uh, that was this Michael Mann getting in an SUV, leaving the courthouse. I believe that was right before the verdict. That was probably when the jury, where the case went to the jury the other day. All right. When we come back, we're going to have Andrew Lawton, broadcaster, columnist, uh, managing editor of the True North uh, publication and host of the Andrew Lawton Show, also the author of The Freedom Convoy, the inside story that's three weeks that shook the world uh, in Canada. This is Unleashed with Mark Morana. We'll be right back after these messages. 
celebrity, Sonia Porton. You feel the need to describe yourself along with being a useless eater, free speech, isn't a phobia, as a male with a penis. Why would you feel the need to describe yourself as such? Well, you never know these days, do you? Anyone can have a penis, apparently, so just thought you better make sure everybody knows. And that, and that is the reality, isn't it? Words have lost all meaning. And one of the things that I wanted you to come on and come and join me about and comment about is the whole issue of gender and transgenderism. Are you cis, Jack? No. There's no such thing. There was, there was literally no such thing until a couple of years ago. And it's, it's their religion. It's not mine. And I refuse to get involved with this sort of terminology. It's ridiculous. Sonia Poulton on today's News Talk TNT. From weather and traffic reports to news of political developments, we turn to journalists for the information we need to live our daily lives. Journalists around the world provide the news that is essential for democracy, for personal freedom, and for safety and stability. Yet their ability to report freely and safely is under attack like never before. Too many journalists are paying with their lives. They faced exponential risks and they've already paid a heavy toll. Death threats, online harassment, and physical attacks are becoming a daily experience of journalists in all countries. We just want people to be safe, to be able to get our readers the information that they need to make informed decisions. They checked my phone and realized that it was Pegasus. I feel myself like I'm naked at the street. These charges were politicized from the start. Facts win. Truth wins. Justice wins. C'est énorme pour moi d'être là, d'être libre. Surtout que je m'y attendais pas du tout. Stand with the free press. Stand with journalists whose reporting won't be silenced. Press freedom is your freedom. We don't rock, rock. we talk. talk. Today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back to Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. All right, well, joining us now is Andrew Lawton, broadcaster, columnist, and managing editor of True North, and also the host of the Andrew Lawton Show, also the author of The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world. Welcome to Unleashed uh, on TNT, uh, Andrew. Hey, it's good to be with you, Mark. We've done the reverse a couple of times, so I'm glad That's to be right, on yeah. Freaky Friday here. <laughs> yeah, thanks for coming on. All right, well... You're close. You've worked with Mark Stein and you were you've uh, followed this trial incredibly close. This is 11. Uh, what am I? 12 years, 11 years. I lost count since this has been going on. What are your thoughts? Uh, give us your analysis breakdown. I spent the first 15 minutes going through. I, I did what Roger Pilkey Jr.'s analysis. John Heinracker gave some of my own analysis. I even had clips of Mark Stein uh, and, I, and, we, and, and I gave all the factual. So what do you think? Where, do, where What is this? How does it strike you? And what are your thoughts? I, it was weird. I was down in the courtroom in Washington, D.C. for uh, about a week and a half, pretty much the end of the trial. 
And I'm a foreigner. I'm from Canada. So I, I like Mark. I mean, I this is not an area that is familiar to me. I'm not a lawyer. I'm certainly not an American lawyer or a DC lawyer, which is perhaps why some people like me. But the thing <laughs> that I found baffling is that by the end of it, I'm like, well, in Canada, where I know a little bit about the law, I don't think this would even be a trial right now. So I, I must admit, I was a bit dumbfounded how we get to a four week, almost three and a half week defamation trial with no claim of damages, no evidence of damages. And at the end of it, that guy still somehow wins. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so how, as a Canadian, I mean, so let me ask you this. As watching it and being that close and listening to it all day in and day out, if you had, or were a betting man, or if you had to bet on it, or you had to guess, what would you have guessed the verdict was? Were you shocked by this, or did you just have no idea, or did you think the jury was going to go against yeah. Mark's? Yeah, I, I thought it was maybe not a coin toss, but I thought it was going to be close because it's a jury trial. And, you know, juries of your peers, it's not actually a jury of your peers. It's a jury representative of the jurisdiction you're in. And let's be real. I don't think that a Washington, D.C. jury was going to look favorably upon a guy who, as the plaintiff's lawyers loved pointing out, had been on Fox News and guest hosted for Rush Limbaugh. And they're yeah. uh, using terms like climate denier. They quoted you a few times. I think every time yes. they quoted you, Mark probably lost a jury, a juror. That was basically <laughs> how things went. So, I, you know, you never know. Look, jurors have have a, a very difficult job. They had to listen to three and a half weeks of testimony, at times very scientific. You always yeah. hope that that purity in the process will shine through. But at the end of the day, you're left wondering, is this just a biased left-wing jury full of DC Democrats and public servants that wanted to stick it to the conservative? Yeah, I, I feel like that's the case. Uh, um uh, Roger Pilkey Jr. at University of Colorado, who was actually gave testimony, I guess he gave a deposition uh, back in 2019 to support this, to support Mark Stein. Um, he says that they, the, 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 the notion that this trial was about Michael Mann was not. They turned it into an attack on climate science. Uh, Michael Mann's lawyer mentioned election deniers. And then the Washington mm -hmm. Post seems to be giddy today. They're going on about this trial could have, this verdict could have implications for anyone who questions vaccines, anyone who questions lockdowns, any of the COVID. And remember, it was Anthony Fauci who said, I am the science. And that's what my, that's what Michael Mann basically said. I represent science. So we've got to stop these right-wing deniers, whether it's election, COVID, or climate, from denying these elections. Um, what is your take on that? I mean, do you think do you think this was the larger issue? You think that's what persuaded this? Yeah, DC votes by ninety percent Democrat, so that, that would have a very big sway to point out that he was a guest host on Rush Limbaugh. I mean, I guess if you flipped it, if you you and I were on a jury and uh, we were had Justin Trudeau as the uh, prosecutor, I'm sorry, as a yeah. defendant. Would we, you know, defending himself, would we be sympathetic to him in a way? I guess I guess if you look at it that way, this was a really tough venue for Mark Stein. Yeah, it, it was. And I, I think it underlies the point here that uh, this there's there is still, by the way, I should say, an outstanding legal question. The defendant, so Mark Stein and Rand Simberg, filed a motion to have this case dismissed as a matter of law, which basically means, listen, it doesn't matter what the jury decides. This is not a legal case that is consistent with the laws in the United States. 
The judge still has not ruled on that question. So it's theoretically possible that this thing could be thrown out even after the fact. Although, to be honest, that raises other questions about what the whole point of this is. If the judge right. is just going to keep that little trump card in his back pocket and maybe use it and maybe not. But you are right. I mean, there was a lot of mission creep to use the old line on this, where Michael Mann wanted to make this a referendum on climate change. He wanted to make it about uh, all of these things that it wasn't. And at the end, in, in Michael Mann's lawyer's closing statements, they were talking about exactly what you just described. Oh, if we don't send a message now, that was what they said. Yeah. If we don't send a message, attacks on climate scientists will go unchecked. And what was interesting here is when you look at that award, that was granted for Mark Stein, $1 million in punitive damages. The justification that Michael Mann's lawyer gave when they were instructing the jury and arguing in their closing arguments for the jury was that punitive damages should be used to send a message. So they don't just want to find Mark a million dollars because they want Mark to have to pay Michael Mann a million dollars. They want you and I and yeah. all of your listeners to see that Mark had to pay the million dollars so that we don't dare try to criticize Michael Mann ourselves. Yeah, and that's that I think is why the Washington Post, New York Times, they're giddy because this, you know, I wouldn't be surprised that Michael Mann is already talking about getting going after CEI, National Review. He went, he's like, you know, he's drunk on victory and he wants to go after anyone and everyone at this point. And you imagine, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Anthony Fauci, what if he does some lawsuits against people like uh, Alex Berenson or Tucker Carlson? I mean, you never know. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, they could probably win. The, the other thing is this is a lower court. I mean, D.C. Superior Court is not the court of the, you know, the final word, obviously. So this could appeal to higher courts, eventually end up in the Supreme Court. I don't know if that's going to happen. I heard there, where Mark Stein um, actually said that they're going to at least appeal, likely appeal the the uh, punitive damages of a million dollars. Um it's hard to imagine these jurors getting in a room. That's sticking it. That's sending a message that they that they just want to send a message. It's a chilling message on free speech. But all right, what did you think of Bill Nye's presence? I don't know if you got to see him in action coming. There was some talk. I, yeah, I, I saw Bill Nye in the front yeah. row uh, there. And, and look, I, I'm a I'm a Canadian millennial. I was raised with any time a teacher yeah. was sick, the substitute just throwing on the Bill Nye reruns, and we watched those. So I used to like Bill Nye when he was telling me about you know how a bowling ball knocks over the bowling pins, and when he was talking <laughs> about uh, how when you get into the bathtub the water overflows. I liked that Bill Nye, and there was like I blinked, and ten years elapsed. And Bill Nye's on CNN lecturing me about driving a gas-powered car. I'm like, bring back the old Bill Nye. We all liked yeah. him. Yeah, that's a good way of that's a great way of putting it. Um, tell us a little bit. I don't know if you were there when Judith Curry testified, but mm -hmm. there's some remarkable testimony of what Michael Mann did to her. Can you sort of lay that out and explain what her testimony is? And uh just to show that show some of the meanness and the pettiness of uh, Michael Mann. Yeah, and I actually have a little bit of an inside uh, scoop on this that you won't get anywhere yeah. else. It's not a good scoop. I'm overselling it. But uh, Judith Curry was the subject of an email that Michael Mann sent to a couple of uh, colleagues, including one who works at NASA, to his NASA email address. And he was spreading just rumors and gossip about when Judith Curry was at uh, university and she had apparently been seduced by this married professor when she was a student. And it sounds all salacious. And then you learn the facts, which is that she was not a student when she met uh, the man who's now her husband, Professor Peter Webster. And she was a professor. Peter Webster was also separated from his wife and had been for, I, I believe it was well over a year. So it 
it was just a professor getting together with a professor, uh, two colleagues, but this was being shared around by Michael Mann. And again, that seems like it's defamatory to me. But uh, when Michael Mann was asked about that, he said, oh, I just, you know, evidently I had the wrong facts. It was just a, a little private communique among friends. But what was interesting was I was in the the audience in the courtroom when that email was put up on the screen. They, they had evidence on these big television screens. And I happened to be sitting at the back of the room right next to the woman who was the court security officer, the woman that was making sure no one was too rambunctious. And she looked up and read that email on the screen and audibly said, wow, because oh, she wow. was in disbelief that this like meek, mild mannered professor type at the front of the room was going around saying that this eminent climate scientist was just some university whore that slept with a professor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. Uh, and I was and like, so, in that moment, sorry to interrupt. I'm like, man, I wish that security yeah. officer were on the jury right now. <laughs> well, uh, so Judith Curry also testified, and uh, and under I guess her deposition, that she uh, said it was a valid claim to say the hockey stick was fraudulent uh, to some extent. So tell us a little bit about the science. I know Steve McIntyre showed up. They, in order, you know, in order to defame someone, it has to be not true. So who did Michael? Who did Mark Stein bring in to say the hockey stick was essentially a fraudulent piece of science? Well, certainly that there was an argument that one could make about it. That was the the point. It was casting doubt on all of this, that the hockey stick was not the be all and end all of science. But he had a large number of, of witnesses, Steve McIntyre and Ross McKittrick, who wrote what I would say was the definitive takedown in their view of the hockey stick graph. Judith Curry, also Abraham Weiner, who's a statistics professor at the University of Pennsylvania, the same school at which Michael Mann now works. And he was there as an expert witness. And he was saying, just from a statistical perspective, these are all of the problems that I have with this hockey stick graph. Yeah. Well, well, here's something Roger Pilkey Jr. wrote. And just from witnessing Mann and seeing what he wrote, he said, uh, when I entered the courtroom, I had a profound sense of sadness for Michael Mann. He was alone with his lawyer, no family, no friends, no university officials, no adoring fans, no media, totally alone. As I said at the trial, man has not been the best colleague to me, but I am but I am fine even so. Who knows what demons hot haunt Michael Mann and why he behaves the way he does? I do hope he can find some peace at this point. And anyone who's seen Michael Mann's Twitter knows what he's talking about. Uh, did, did you get, do you get a sense that Michael Mann will find peace and maybe become a better human and act nicer? Or is this going to just unleash the, 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 the worst aspects of his personality? What's your sense? You know, I've seen defamation cases. I, I've followed defamation cases where, where people's lives have been ruined or have come close to ruin because of what they endured. And it's easy to root. I mean, by the time one of these cases goes to trial and it's, you know, everyone's abandoned all points at which they could settle, you kind of assume, okay, yeah. there must be something really motivating this. And, uh, you know, maybe you just want that victory, that judge to say, yes, you were defamed and you win a dollar and here you go. But Michael yeah. Mann, he won. He won one, what was it? One million, one thousand and two dollars was the total yeah. judgment. And at the end of it, what does he say? Now it's time to go after those jerks at the National Review and, and Competitive Enterprise Institute. I mean, he wants to burn the whole system down. And that is, I think, something that speaks volumes. He didn't just want the vindication of a jury saying, yes, you were defamed. Yes, they were wrong. You were right. He wants everyone in his path destroyed. Now, here's a question. It came out in the trial that Michael Mann wasn't paying 
for his legal defense. 12 years of the highest price lawyers. At one point, I don't know if these were the lawyers, but he had the big tobacco lawyers who, who defended big tobacco. Um, you know, what's the story behind that? Who's paying for Michael Mann's lawyer? Do you think there's ever a way we'll be able to figure that out? Who paid for this? Was it, a, you know, like whether it's a George Soros funded or some foundation, any clue on that or any insight on that? No, I mean, I, I've seen rumors and I, I don't want to speculate on them. Yeah. I think there are a couple of players in this space that would be very logical contenders for uh, who it is that would be funding it. And I mean, to be honest, I, I had a conversation with someone about this after the verdict came out. And it's not an idea that I'm genuinely proposing, but I, I want to put it out as food for thought here, that there is a, a real issue in the justice system with public interest uh, NGOs and agencies funding legal defenses. Because if you have no skin in the game, you have no motivation to really be prudent about it. If you were paying the millions and millions of dollars in legal fees that you need to sustain a 12-year legal case, you would probably be motivated to just be an adult and work this out privately and quietly. There's no motivation to do that when someone else is writing your checks. So I think there's actually, in a roundabout way, an injustice when you have groups that have a political agenda step forward and cover people's legal fees. Wow. Uh, what what do you think uh, when you look at this trial? What's next? Um, you know, there was a talk the Washington Post talking about going after COVID. Do you think this will have implications beyond this trial? What do you see as the long term impacts on free speech here? Well, I, I could see Michael Mann going on a crusade and filing suits against anyone and everyone who's amplified or echoed these comments. Uh, I mean, there's a statute of limitations, I, I presume, not being too familiar with it about this, but uh, certainly in the course of covering this trial and commenting on it, that would be there. I also see the same people that wanted Michael Mann to take this uh, fight up going to other scientists and saying, see, he's now paved the way. He's now broken the ice. I'm Canadian. We use ice metaphors. Uh, you can now <laughs> do this yourself. Selves. And I, I see there as being a, a logjam of these sorts of cases now. It's a bad day for free speech. All right. And then in terms of the, what Michael Mann did in Canada, he sued Tim Ball, I guess very similar. Can you just give us a quick breakdown of how the Tim Ball case, what that was over and how that resolved? Yeah. And I, so this was a, a little, I mean, all of it was, I guess, before when I started covering these issues, because they've been going yes, on yeah. so long. As I understand it, Tim Ball made a joke. He made a, a pun, which was clearly a pun, which was based on wordplay. And it was something that Michael Mann sued him over. And, and in the end, he failed to prosecute his case. He uh, just decided he had enough litigation and enough stuff going on. And he was doing too many uh, meet and greets with the gubernatorial candidates and presidents and Leo DiCaprio to tend to this little lawsuit in British Columbia, Canada. So he let it languish and eventually the court threw it out. And what was notable there was that there was a, a cost award against Michael Mann, I think something in the range of, of $90,000 Canadian. So that's like, you know, four or $5 American. But, uh, you know, it was a, an award which was not insignificant. And uh, it was never paid, to my knowledge. And I, I spoke to Tim about this not long before he died. Tim died uh, not that long ago. And yeah. I've spoken to his widow, and I know Mark and his team have as well. And uh, that money, as far as I'm aware, was never, ever paid. All right. All right. I guess the final question is, what do you think Mark Stein does next uh, after this? As, do you think he should appeal this to highest? Because, you know, it's going to take money, time, energy, folk. I mean, a 12-year lawsuit is miserable. But what do you think his next step might be? Yeah. And, and just to say on that, I mean, there was a case in Canada this week where a human trafficking trial 
was thrown out because it had taken 30 months before it could get to trial. So the people accused of human trafficking walk because they say, well, if you can't do it in 30 months, it's not worth it. This was 12 years and it was certainly (laughs) not as severe, whatever you think of Mark Stein and Rand Simberg of uh, these sorts of of issues that we're uh, talking about in the context of human trafficking. So I don't know if Mark, and I haven't spoken to him directly since then, if he wants to reset the clock and go through an appeal process, certainly they have said they're going to appeal the award. And I I did a little bit of research. There is a precedent in the Supreme Court of the U.S. that says punitive damages awards can't be more than 10 times what compensatory damages awards are. Now, if that precedent holds, that would mean that Mark would be on the hook, not for a million dollars, but for $10. Oh, interesting. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, this is great. We wish Mark Stein the best. And and, uh, yes, uh, I just can't imagine this was the, you know, to me, worst case scenario for this to happen. But all right, we're going to take a break here, Andrew. When we come back, I want to talk to you about your book, The Freedom Convoy, Inside Story of the Three Weeks That Shook the World. Uh, and we'll talk about what Justin Trudeau actually did and what the Freedom Convoy accomplished. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. We'll be right back with Andrew Lawton. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malzberg. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the end of the week. So how about a little dose of Joe Biden at his best to get you through the weekend? Folks, um, uh, I, uh, if I were smart, I'd say thank you and leave. There's asylum asylum officers and over 100 cutting edge inspection machines to help detect and stop fentanyl coming out of our southwest border. Greedflation, shrinkflation. You see that article about the Snickers bar? Well, it's going to stop. America, we're tired of being played for suckers. We get thousands. Look, we, we, you know, we now have, we used to, before the recession, before the, the pandemic, the beer brewed here, it is used to make the brew beer here in this refinery. Oh, Earth Rider, thanks for the Great Lakes. I wonder why it's going cost 10 bucks to make it. 10 bucks to make it. We'll teach Donald Trump a, a valuable lesson. Don't mess with the mineral Now, normally this would be humorous, funny, you know? But this is a man who's president of the United States and looking for four more years on the job. It's frightening. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on TNT. I'm Cal Fire Battalion Chief Isaac Sanchez. And normally we like to provide you with tips on how to keep yourselves and your family safe during wildfires. But given the historic impacts that the weather has had on our state this year, we would like to provide you with tips on how to keep yourself safe during extreme weather. If you reside in an area susceptible to flooding, please take the necessary steps to prepare to evacuate if advised. Make sure you've identified at least two exit routes out of your neighborhood as one of them may be blocked or flooded. As the weather develops, remember to check in on vulnerable neighbors and family members. They may need additional time to prepare for evacuation. And just like during a wildfire, if you feel unsafe, please evacuate. You don't have to wait for the order to come. Keep an emergency go bag ready in case you need to evacuate. And always remember to plan for the safety of your pets as well. If you must leave, never drive around roadblocks. It can take as little as 12 inches of water to sweep your vehicle away. And always remember the mantra, turn around, don't drown. Be aware of first responders working in highly impacted areas, especially on the roads. For additional safety tips and updates on CAL FIRE activities, follow us on social media or visit fire.ca.gov.
Taking no prisoners. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back to Unleashed on TNT. This is your host, Mark Morano. All right, we're continuing with uh, um, uh, Andrew Lawton right now, the author of The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world. Uh, all right, so tell us about this, Andrew. Just give us the setup, first of all. Canada, how would you, you know, how did you compare Canada's COVID restrictions with, say, the rest of the world, the US, Europe? Uh, what was Justin Trudeau doing? And then tell us about the book and why the truckers were mad. What were they protesting? Yeah, in some ways, things were very bad. Well, they were very bad in a lot of places. And, and the comparison game is never a constructive one when collectively everyone's civil liberties are, are being trampled on. Yes. I think a lot of Australians had it uh, probably worse, especially because they're on a literal island and, and couldn't get out of it. Uh, the UK had some just absolute insanity, people being told they couldn't sit on a park bench because they had insufficiently uh, used or inefficiently used up their allotted time outside. You had in Ireland... <laughs> a radius where you couldn't go more than a certain number of uh, miles from your home. Uh, in Canada, though, there were some jurisdictions where things were just as uh, draconian. In Quebec, you had a curfew. You couldn't go out of your home after a, a certain time at night. In Ontario, at one point, the government authorized police to stop and question why you were out and you had to demonstrate that you were out of your home for a, an essential reason. Now, in the end, they they backed off of that, thankfully. But uh, we also had vaccine mandates and vaccine passports that were in place for a long period of time. When I was seeing headlines about uh, the UK opening up in Canada, Justin Trudeau was adding restrictions. And the straw that broke the camel's back in uh, December of 2020, uh, well, 2021, was a vaccine mandate for truckers, people that uh, drive around in their trucks alone all day. They had to be vaccinated to be able to cross the border because Canada-U.S. trade is incredibly important to both countries. The trucks go across that border all the time. They had been exempt from COVID mandates on vaccines because of how important those supply chains are. And that was the... The, the, the last straw for these people who then started organizing, it started with truckers to say, let's just take our trucks to Ottawa. Uh, we can't work because of the vaccine passports. We've got time on our hands. Let's yeah. drive to Ottawa, park in front of Parliament Hill and send a message to the government. And very quickly, this became a demonstration for all Canadians who were fed up with the COVID regime. Okay, so then that all makes sense. And God bless these truckers. So what happens? Justin Trudeau, then for the first time invokes the Canadian Emergencies Act and declares these truckers what? What are, what are they, domestic terrorists? What happens next then after they start the well, protest? Yeah, basically. I mean, he doesn't use the word terrorism, but this is a piece of wartime legislation that's meant to be used when your country is in war or facing what the legislation says is a threat to the security of Canada. So that was what they said this convoy posed. And it wasn't just the invocation of the act. It was what they used the act to do. So this allowed them to declare any protest illegal uh, and any free protest. We have constitutional freedoms in Canada. They're not as strong as America's, but they do exist. The government could say, nope, this is an illegal protest. They could also conscript tow truck drivers because tow truck drivers were supporting the truckers. They actually didn't want to go in there and start removing trucks. So the government had to basically nationalize the towing industry for a time and more crucially freeze the bank accounts of anyone who the government said was offering support. So theoretically, if you had donated $10 to a trucker because you agreed with their message, you could have had your bank account frozen under the legislation. 
Well, now, when when he was able to, I think he canceled their insurance and froze the bank accounts. Now, this just to be clear, this isn't like, oh, we're going to cut government services. You'll have no access. This was access from the truckers to their own bank accounts, right? And and is that what we're talking about? Yeah, and not just their own, but uh, personal, corporate, and even spouses were affected. In some cases, wow. if you had a, a joint bank account and your wife was 2,000 miles away at home, uh, she can't buy uh, food for the little ones because your bank account was frozen. So how did it how did the banks cooperate? Did Justin Trudeau like call the bankers, call the insurance company and say you got to cut it off or do, were they ordered by the Canadian government or were they willing participants? Do they just have to follow the law? What was the bank and insurance company's role in cutting off access to these truckers? It was all of the above. So we only have really five major banks in Canada. So it's very easy to get those five CEOs on a phone right. call. But what we saw was that they were supportive of this. They actually called for the government to treat these people like terrorists. So when the government eventually put these measures wow. in place, the banks were all too willing to go along. There was no pushback yeah. from the financial sector. That's that's the, probably the most disturbing thing you've said about the whole trucking thing right now. Because, I mean, so it was a basic corporate government collusion, which by because obviously no legis just to be clear, no legislators. First of all, no legislators voted for the vaccine mandate, voted for lockdowns, voted for church closures. Mm -hmm. Is that correct in Canada? Was there was any of that democracy? Yeah. It, no one in the U.S. did. But no, did anyone vote for that in Canada? No, they were. I mean, yes and no. They were all done by what we what you would call executive orders, but by, by yes. cabinet uh, privilege. But to be fair, Justin Trudeau won re-election in 2021, Afterward. and he was very candid yeah. about what he wanted to do. So in a, a sad way, and I think the way that's far more devastating is that the Canadians uh, showed their tolerance for this. So how did this end then? I mean, I know it eventually ended, but how did, you know, what did the, the, the what what brought the trucker protest to an end? How did it come to a close? It, it was this. I mean, the, the, the Emergencies Act came in, police moved into overdrive, and within the span of about 48 hours, they had uh, gone in, pulled everyone out, gotten rid of the trucks, and uh, then the emergency was declared no longer in force. Now, uh, you fast forward, though, to about two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, and the federal court in Canada, not the Supreme Court, but it's a, a very significant court, found that this was all unconstitutional. Now, maybe too little too late, and the government has yeah. appealed it uh, or is appealing it, but this has now been found to have been illegal under law just under two years after after the fact. So can the Canadians sue Justin Trudeau for damages? So the truckers, can they sue Justin, the government for damages? Is that even a possibility in Canada? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not necessarily in a D.C. courtroom. We don't know how, how it would go there. But <laughs> yeah, uh, in, yeah. in the case of what's happening now, yes, they they can. And anyone who is affected by this, whose bank account was frozen, uh, credit ratings were affected. Some people still have permanent red flags on their account. They now can seek recourse against the state. Well, and I remember there was a police commissioner at the time who wanted to just sort of keep hunting people down. I mean, this was uh, in Canada. I mean, the police were all in on this sort of fascist corporate government fascist were there any police chiefs police officials who were like i'm not going to enforce these orders because in the united states we had many L like la county sheriff who refused to do the lockdown they just weren't going to enforce the government's action was there anything like that any police heroes in canada that would refuse to comply with the government's orders we, we, during COVID, we did. It, it was the reason that that policy I mentioned earlier in Ontario, where they wanted to give police powers to stop and question why people were out of their homes. Uh, the it was all the police forces in Ontario were the ones that actually said, we aren't going to do this. And that was what made the government back off. But on the Emergencies Act, everyone fell in line.
Okay. All right. We got to go. Thank you. Andrew Lawton. His book is The Freedom Convoy, Inside Story of the Three Weeks That Shook the World. Thanks for watching Unleashed with Mark Morano. See you next time.